0: throughout his ministry Jesus said many great things about himself in contrast to the world's darkness he said on one occasion I am the light of the world when he thought of our waywardness he said I am the way on one occasion when he thought of our helplessness he said I am the Good Shepherd when he thought of our deadness in sin he declared I am the resurrection and the life And on this occasion, when he thought of the greatness of Jonah, whose preaching we remember transformed Nineveh's rioting into tears of repentance, he said, Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. And in the same vein, thinking of Solomon's wisdom, glory, and greatness, he said, A greater than Solomon is here. Now, whenever we look at the contrasts and the comparisons that are made by our Lord, it is to be remembered that He is greater than anything He is likened to. Human language will always fall short of expressing all that He is. Every comparison, metaphor, and simile simply skirts the edges of Christ's glory. And that's really the way it is with anything that we might use to try to express our feelings about Him. The world's most imaginative architects have sought to build cathedrals worthy of him, but they have entirely missed the point, and they have failed. The greatest musicians of all time have sought to create music sweet enough for his hymns of praise. Their songs are dissonant next to the songs they sing in heaven, however. The pulpit's greatest orators whose sentences are like golden arrows aimed at the hearts of their hearers cannot find enough words in all of the English language or any other language to set Christ forth in his true beauty. But what a concise declaration that is very rich with meaning and symbolism and truth that the Son of God makes here when he says, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. I want us to pitch our mental tents on that vast field of thought for a little while tonight when Jesus said, I am greater than Solomon. I can tell you that it was a very appropriate reply for the occasion on which it was spoken. The scribes and the Pharisees, whose creeds Jesus repeatedly condemned and whose hypocrisy Jesus over and over unmasked, once again daringly came to Jesus, saying in Matthew 12 and 39, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And Jesus said, or Jesus refused to grant them their request. He begins in verse 39 by saying an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, it was not that the Lord was averse to performing a miracle to prove that he was who he claimed to be, because after all, that was the purpose of Christ's miracles. That was really the purpose of any miracle ever performed within the Bible, was to prove the veracity of the scriptures, or the claims of the one who was working the miracle. We recall that in John the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31, that John declared that there were many things that Jesus did that were not even recorded in that particular gospel, but he said these are written that we might believe that he is the Christ, that he is who he claims to be. And so it would seem to us as though Jesus would be eager to perform a miracle before anyone if it would go to prove that he was the Son of God. But on this occasion, Jesus said, a sign will not be given except, he said, the sign that already has been given. He said, No sign will be given to this generation because it's an evil and an adulterous generation. That is, the Lord could look beyond the facade and he could see their hearts, and the Lord could see that these indeed were an hypocritical and an insincere people. And he said that, uh, and he bases that in part upon the fact that they had already received signs from God, as it were, that they rejected. They had already received the truth of their own scriptures that they had turned a deaf ear to, and that was shown in the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now there was a type in what happened to Jonah, that familiar story that these people obviously overlooked. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he says the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now we of course recall the story of Jonah and how that after he refused to go where God told him to go to preach what he was supposed to preach, that he ran from God and he boarded a ship and that he was cast overboard from that ship and swallowed up by a great fish that God had prepared and he spent those three days there in the belly of that fish and that fish finally spit him up on dry ground upon which uh, Jonah went repented before God and went to Nineveh and he preached to that city, and God turned that city around to the preaching of Jonah. Well, that was a foreglean of the fact that Jesus Christ would die upon the cross and then would be buried in the heart of the earth. He would rest in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, but for three days, and then he would break the surly bonds of death, and he would come forth victorious over sin and the grave, and there was never a greater miracle ever performed than that. There was never a greater evidence of the Holy Spirit given than what the Holy Spirit effected within Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of these people, knew that based upon the condition of their heart that they would reject even the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if there's anything that the scriptures teach so far as man finding himself in a hopeless state, it is when a man can see the clear evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and still deny that Jesus is not who he claims to be. And so he says, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but knowing the hearts of this people, you're not going to repent even though you see the Lord rise from the dead. And so what good would it do for me to put on a show or work a miracle for you here? And so he refused. And then Jesus cites another example. He says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now, if they answered Jesus when he said that, the Bible doesn't tell us how. But I rather think that they silently answered him with their scowls and with their sneers and by clenching their fists. And could you have put their angry words in uh, thoughts into words, they would have said something like this. Solomon, a king's son, born in a palace, And who are you but a carpenter's son born in a barn? Solomon was from the great city of Jerusalem, and you're from that tiny backward town of Nazareth. Solomon went around wearing a robe, and you go around uh, adorned in a peasant's garb. Solomon commanded triennial armies and navies. You go around raking gutters to get people to follow after you. Solomon drank from vessels of gold and you asked Samaritan harlots for a drink of water. It took Solomon 13 years to build his house and you don't even have a home. And Solomon dined with the elite of the earth such as the queen of Sheba. But you go around eating with publicans and with sinners and with the lowlifes of this earth. How in the world can you make such an such a audacious claim that you are greater than Solomon? But he is and in every respect. And in fact, I don't know of any comparison that the Lord could have drawn that would have been any greater and gotten his point across any more than the comparison that he made because besides Christ, there was none greater that ever lived upon the earth in many respects. Jesus himself spoke of Solomon in all of his glory in Matthew chapter six and verse 29. the name Solomon is synonymous with several things. Probably when I just mention his name tonight, there are at least two things that come into your mind. One is that Solomon was an exceedingly wealthy man, and indeed he was. In 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 23, King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. He lived in such luxury, he would make the president today look like a, a pauper living in a government housing project. He sat upon a great throne of ivory, overlaid with the very best gold 1 Kings 10 and 18 every drinking vessel in the palace was made out of solid gold we're told in 1 Kings 10 and 21 the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as pebbles and stones scattered around on the ground verse 27 he built a temple that was one of the architectural wonders of the world filled with gold and silver and uh, every imaginable precious jewel that had been gathered from the four corners of the earth his economic policy for Israel was built on the notion of trade with other Nations which expanded and enriched Israel until it became the envy of the known world. And then you probably think of Solomon as being very wise because God indeed granted him wisdom more than any other man, the scripture tells us, in 1 Kings 4 and verse 29. He was wiser than all men, the Bible says. God gave him largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore, and that was evidenced in his life. He was such a prolific man. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,000 and five songs. He spoke with scientific expertise. Well predating the age in which he lived about animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And in fact his wisdom was so impressive that men of every nation under heaven including the most noble of kings came from all over the earth to come and merely sit at his feet and to hear Solomon talk. Solomon as well was great in rule. The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 29 and 23 that he sat on the throne of the Lord as king and he prospered and all Israel obeyed him. Now sometimes in our democratic form of government, uh, people of this country go to the polls and they elect a man to the presidency. And they sometimes elect him by such a wide margin, we call that a landslide victory, and the result of that is we say that he goes to Washington with a mandate. And that simply means that he's going to go to the nation's capital carrying a big stick and that he's going to be able to most likely push through the agenda that he campaigned upon because he was so wildly popular and overwhelmingly voted in by the American people. And his approval ratings are probably going to ride very high for quite some time. Well, Solomon was not elected to office. He was, of course, uh, anointed and, and, and appointed by God for that particular place. Uh, A throne upon which he sat. But nonetheless, Solomon was a wildly popular king. The Bible teaches that all of Israel humbled themselves before him. They obeyed him. And why not? Because he led Israel to a glorious hour. They prospered as a people. And the Bible says that God exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. You talk about the Camelot of ancient Israel. Here was an era of pomp and circumstance and glory and power and splendor and riches and sovereignty in the world. Why wouldn't he be popular? And yet to this day Solomon is remembered as one of the greatest rulers in the history of the world and in fact Israel never saw a more glorious hour than that 40 year reign of Solomon. But after all of that is said and much more, here's Jesus, the fisherman, the son of a carpenter, the vagabond who traveled no farther than the small region of Palestine, who had the audacity to say, I am greater than Solomon. But indeed he is, and in many regards, and I want to talk to you about some of them tonight. I want to begin by saying that Jesus had a greater birth than Solomon. On the surface it may not seem that the births of these two great men would even begin to compare because after all you would be impressed with the birth of Solomon and not so by the birth of Jesus. Solomon was born in a chandelier illuminated palace attended by nursemaids and servants of every kind. Jesus on the other hand was born among cattle in a lantern lit barn in Bethlehem. Solomon was born into a nation that was ripe for prosperity. The throne handed to him on a silver platter. Christ, on the other hand, was born into the saddest hour of the world's history, and his life was difficult. His throne ultimately earned by dying upon a cross. But that's not the real difference. After the fashion of any other man, Solomon was conceived of David and Bathsheba, but only in a fashion fit for one who was divine becoming a man. Jesus was conceived of Mary and the Holy Spirit. Joseph was told by the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, by the angel David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. No greater declaration could be made about the birth of anyone, of course, When Solomon was born his parents smiled and they were very happy to welcome this new addition into their family. But when Jesus was born, God drew back the curtains of heaven and a choir of angels broke forth into praise And the Bible says they sang out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Luke chapter 2 and verse 13. When Solomon was born, he was simply another in the succession of Israel's kings. But when Jesus was born, he was declared the son of the most high God. And when he was born, Jesus took Bethlehem and he made it greater than Athens. He made it greater than Rome. He made it greater than Jerusalem. And contemporary historians may not have taken a lot of note of him at the time. But Christ, when he was born, took and bent every dateline of every nation around his lowly cradle until this very day the date on the newspaper that you picked up and read this morning, the date on every check you wrote this week, the date on every deed that's recorded in your local courthouse, the date that is etched on every tombstone in every cemetery and upon every monument, so testifies to the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was cradled in a lowly stable, but the timeless Christ Christianized the calendars of the world, but no one today dates a letter from the birth of Solomon because truly a greater then Solomon is here. And let me tell you that that really is one of the great foundational truths of the gospel and of Christianity. And if I don't have the faith, if I don't have the capacity to accept that Jesus Christ was divine and man, if I don't have the faith to believe that Jesus Christ was the confluence of God and of man, if I don't have the faith to believe that the birth or the conception of Jesus Christ was unlike anything that had ever happened before or has ever happened since or will ever happen again, that he was indeed conceived and in a virgin, that he was born under miraculous circumstances that I don't believe the Bible, period, because it all rests upon that great truth. He is tonight not just a prophet. He is not just a teacher. He is not just a bright spot on the timeline of history, but rather Jesus is God come down living among man. And Paul declared him in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 to be God manifest in the flesh and justified by the spirit spirit. He was greater in birth than Solomon. Number two, Jesus is greater in wisdom than Solomon. It must have been an impressive thing to follow Solomon around. And to hear Solomon speak from day to day about simple things that he would encounter in nature, in the world around him. The Bible says in 1 Kings 4 and 33 that he... Uh, In his wisdom that he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And you can imagine perhaps as they strolled along the streets of the city in his royal entourage as he saw a vine as it sprang out from the wall that he would stop and point to it and could talk about it and he could discuss that particular life form or as he saw a bird fly overhead, he could talk about that bird and its species and he could talk about its habitat and how it lives and how it survives and so forth. And he could amaze anyone who was with him by his wisdom of such things. And of course we know that the wisdom of Solomon provided us with guideposts for daily living even yet today because we yet turn to the book of Proverbs. We yet turn to the sermon to the young man in the book of Ecclesiastes and we learn what really is important in life. We learn what is the wise way to live our lives. We learn about the house that was built by wisdom and the pillars that undergirded and supported and upholded. We learn all of that from Solomon but yet Christ and his wisdom could go farther than simply telling of the trees and the birds and the vine and the fish, but rather Jesus could tell how those things came to be because he made the tree, he made the animal, he made the bird, he made the fish. He predates Solomon because before Solomon was ever thought of, Jesus was. Jesus always has been. And the Bible says in Colossians 1 and 17, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Solomon might could have spoken about the fowl of the air, but he couldn't, as could Jesus, mark the fall of every tiny sparrow. Solomon might have known a lot about fishing, but he couldn't do what Jesus did, and that is fill up a net that was empty all night with enough fish to sink a ship. Solomon had a vast knowledge of trees, but he couldn't do what Jesus did on one occasion, and that is kill a barren fig tree with a few quietly spoken words. Solomon may have known a lot about the stars, but he couldn't, as could Jesus, and as does Jesus, number the stars and measure the heavens with a span. Where Solomon's knowledge was partial, Christ's knowledge was perfect and it was full. Men yet go to Solomon for advice, but they go to Jesus for the keys to life itself. Only Jesus, not Solomon, could know the character of Nathanael from afar. Only he could know the impure life of the Samaritan woman upon first meeting her. Only he could know the hidden and unexpressed thoughts of his disciples. Only he could know that Judas really was a treasonous traitor and that Peter was deep down a coward. He never went to school. He never attended a university. He never earned a degree, but he confounded and he confused the most elite scholars of his time by his answers to their questions, and by his questions that they could not answer. Jesus was indeed greater in wisdom than Solomon. He was homeless and penniless, but he knew the perplexities and the temptations of the rich, and he knew even as he knows now our thoughts from afar off. Number three, and I want to spend a few moments on this point. Jesus is greater in building than Solomon. I suppose that Solomon's greatest achievement in all of his life, and particularly in his reign as king over Israel, was the construction of the great temple of God. It was an architectural masterpiece. God, the architect of the ages, drafted the plans to that magnificent structure and he handed them down to David but would not permit him to build it because he was a man of war. And so David thus handed them on down to Solomon who employed the vast inexhaustible wealth that he had gathered from the earth and he concentrated all of that wealth into the building of this temple and I'm gonna tell you it was something to behold according to the scriptures. If it gives you any idea, it took 183,600 men working over the course of seven and a half years to build it. The cost of the tallest and most impressive building on earth today is mere dollars compared to the expense and the intricacy and the opulence of Solomon's temple. Here just a couple of months ago or, a few, or several weeks ago, I was able to stop through New York City on a trip, first time I'd ever been there. Maybe you've been there, maybe several times. But it was a real thrill of mine to finally get to see that city in downtown Manhattan. And I went up after dark and got on top of Rockefeller Center. And you could look out all over Manhattan and see the skyline at night. And my mind just reeled to think about, I've never seen so many buildings in one place in all of my life. And I've been to a lot of cities across the country. It's just absolutely a sea of concrete and glass and steel. And it boggles your mind to think of the expense and the manpower and the knowledge that it took to construct all of that. And many of those buildings have stood for decades and decades and decades and withstood the forces of nature and so on and so forth. But that's nothing compared to what Solomon's temple was. Here you have almost 200,000 men for seven and a half years working to complete it. Modern architects estimate that Solomon's temple would cost about $100 billion in present-day money to build. And it was beautiful. Its entire front from top to bottom was overlaid with plates of pure gold. And facing the east in the morning sun, it had such a dazzling brightness that the unshaded eye couldn't even look upon it. And when it was finally finished, what a ceremony Israel had. All of that nation came together, and 4,000 ushers served that event. A great choir of Levites sang, an orchestra of 4,000 instruments. You imagine it. An orchestra of 4,000 instruments played. And when Solomon finished his prayer of dedication, the glory of God came down and filled that temple so that the priest couldn't even enter it for some time, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That's hard to beat. But Jesus, our Lord, having only worked in an humble carpenter's shop, ended up taking two, if you please, roughly hewn pieces of wood and three rusty nails, and he built a building that spans from Pentecost to eternity. He built something that outshines Solomon's temple He built something that has outlasted Solomon's temple because Solomon's temple resides in the dust and the ash heaps of history. But Christ's temple stands. And Christ's temple has stood in the face of every assault and every destructive power that hell and earth combined could throw at it, and yet it stands It stands impregnable. It stands untarnished. It stands unbendable and unbreakable. What is that temple tonight? Some people are looking in the wrong places and they're looking at the wrong things. Men set out today to build places of worship for God God, and they attempt to build them to the glory of God, you know, and they spend millions of dollars constructing these great massive cathedrals and, boy, they're beautiful fact, speaking in New York City, just walk up and down the streets of Manhattan, and you'll pass some cathedrals that their spires absolutely go stories up into the air, and stained glass windows that would boggle your mind, and you can imagine what it would just be to step inside and look around. And to think of all of the marble and the granite and the expense that goes into that. And people have the idea that they build something like that because the glory and the presence of God comes down and fills it. And people have this false concept that when they come to a place like that, they're coming to meet God because that's where God is. Well, now their thinking's a little bit out of date. Because there was a time when God dwelt in tabernacles and temples that were made with hands. There was a time when God made a tabernacle that the children of Israel carried with them and God came down and he dwelt there with them in that holy of holies and they made their point of contact through the high priest with God there that once a year in that inner sanctum. And when Solomon's temple was built, God's glory came down and filled that temple and it was the place where man met God, so to speak. But today God dwells in a temple far different The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 4 that Christ was a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And you also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that temple. The Church of Jesus Christ is that temple. It was founded by the Lord upon the great and indestructible and undeniable fact that Jesus is who He. Claims to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was purchased by the supreme price of His blood, which is more. One drop is worth more than the billions upon billions of dollars that went into constructing Solomon's temple. And the Lord dwells in His temple today, in that He dwells in the hearts of His saints, He dwells within His church. And this building has nothing to do with it tonight. This building is a place of convenience where we come together to do what the scriptures have appointed us to do. But God isn't here in this building any more than he's anywhere else. God dwells in our hearts. And when God's people come together in appointed by divine authority, they come together in an assembly like this. It doesn't have anything to do with this building. It's the fact that God's people are together and God is with us tonight. God is with you every day and he's with me as his child every day. And I am the temple in which he takes up his abode, in which he lives, in which he dwells and holds sway and reigns as king of kings and Lord of lords. And that leads me to my next point. And that is that Jesus sits upon a greater throne than Solomon ever thought about. And in fact, let the Bible itself describe the throne upon which Solomon sat in 2 Chronicles 9 and verse 17. The Bible says moreover the king made a great throne of ivory and he overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat and two lions stood by the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. When you walked in, if you were so privileged, into the palace and into the throne room upon which Solomon sat. You knew you were somewhere, but Jesus sits upon a greater throne, and it is a different throne. Now, when Solomon became the king, when Solomon finished his temple and it was dedicated, I describe what that ceremony must have been like to you, but let me tell you about something greater. Jesus came down here to this world and he lived 33 years being rejected by man. He left the ivory palaces above and came down to this old world of woe, as the song talks about. He left the hails of heaven to come down here and receive the nails of earth. He was rejected of men and even by his own. He did not have a place to lay his head He did not have all of the luxuries, all of the conveniences, and all the glories that you would attribute normally to a king of any kingdom, great or small, here upon this earth. His life was humble. And by man's standards, his life was pitiful. And at the end of that 33 years, with all of the cruelty that man could find in his heart, they took this one who came among them and only did good and claimed to be their savior. And they stretched out his arms after slapping him and spitting on him and cursing him and beating him and scourging him. And they spread out his arms upon a cross and they nailed his hands there and they nailed his feet there. And they suspended that cross in between heaven and earth and dropped it into its socket. And there he hung for six bloody, shameful, dreadful hours. And finally he died. And they took his mangled body And his disciples placed it in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And it was sealed and a watch set over it. But just as Jesus had said, but no one seemed to understand, on the morning of the first day of the week, the Spirit of God resurrected the body of Jesus Christ. And he came forth from that grave a victor. He came forth from that grave having conquered sin and everything that had defeated man up until that point. He took death's sting away and he completed heaven's plan of redemption. And after just a few more days, speaking his final and parting words to his disciples, he went up on top of a hill and there he began to lift up off of this earth. And as he disappeared into a cloud, And off into the heavens, something glorious took place on the other side. There was a crowd, I believe, waiting in heaven for him. There must have been legions of angels lining the golden paved streets of glory. And all of a sudden, the gates swung open. And the King of kings and Lord of lords was ushered in. And he was led to the right hand of God the Father where he had the crown placed upon his head, where he received the royal robe and he received the scepter of power and he sat down at God's right hand and he took up his rule at that moment in time over his kingdom upon this earth. You talk about an inauguration. You talk about a coronation. That's what took place in heaven that day. And that's where Jesus is. And you know I'm ashamed to tell you tonight that there are millions of people in the so-called Christian community who would take that away from Jesus our Lord in some manner of speaking because they had this all wrong. In fact, it amazes me how people can read the Bible, how people can read the Gospels, How people can read about Jesus, constant interactions with the people of his day, with the Jews of his day, and even his disciples, and read about the false notions that they had concerning who Christ was and the kind of king that Christ claimed to be or the kind of king that they thought their Messiah was going to be. But Jesus wasn't that kind of king. He never came trying to gather up armies with weapons in order to bring about conquest on behalf of God. He didn't come riding in upon his white horse and flexing his muscle of power and taking over the kingdoms of this earth. Rather, he lived a very poor, and again by man's standards, pitiful life. And his message was not one of power and of conquest so far as man's thinking was concerned. His message was one of meekness. What kind of king says, If if your brother would smite you, turn uh, turn your cheek and give him the other. What kind of king that wants to take over the world would teach a doctrine that says to love your enemies and bless those that persecute you and so on and so forth? What king lays down and allows his enemies to treat him like that? Well, he wasn't that kind of king. And you know people can read the same Bible you've got tonight. And they can read all of those passages about why they ultimately, and that's why they crucified Jesus. They crucified him because they wanted their king, their Messiah to come in and break the back of the Romans and once again bring about the glory days of Solomon for them. That's what they thought. But that wasn't the kind of king he came to be. And do you know there are those in this world today that teach that Jesus came into this world to be a king? over all in the world. But because he was rejected by the Jews, because they were not prepared to receive such a kingdom, now this is their doctrine speaking, because they were not prepared to receive such a kingdom, he failed in that mission and he had to postpone it. And they say that what Jesus did after he was rejected and ultimately crucified is he built his church here upon this earth as a temporary stopgap measure, as an afterthought. And he built that church to last here until one day he can come and get it right until one day he can come back to this earth and he can finally conquer his enemies and he can finally reinstate the throne of David and sit down over there in the city of Jerusalem and reign and rule over a literal kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And that is the doctrine of dispensational premillennialism. And nearly every denomination in this town, up and down every street that claims some form of Christianity teaches some form of variation of that doctrine tonight. Jesus failed in nothing. Jesus didn't have to put off anything. Jesus didn't miscalculate anything. But when he came to this earth the first time, he knew exactly the world that he was coming into. And he knew how man was going to treat him. He knew that he was going to be rejected, but he built his kingdom anyway. And he built it upon those who would believe in him. And yet to this day, when I obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm baptized for the remission of my sins. According to the first chapter of the book of Colossians, I am delivered out of the power of darkness, and I am translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And Christ reigns over that kingdom now in heaven, and he takes up his reign in my heart when I become such as should be saved. Isn't that wonderful? He sits upon a greater throne than Solomon. <laughs> Lastly, Jesus has a greater home than Solomon. Now, we talked about the temple of Solomon, and it took seven and a half years to build, but it took Solomon 13 years to build his house. And in many ways, like the temple, it was costly, ornate, and elaborate. I won't belabor that fact tonight, but I just must say Solomon must have absolutely lived in a lap of luxury. When you can can have the hinges, on your, the gates of your horse stable be made out of gold, you have arrived, you have wealth, you are rich. This was Solomon. This is the lap of luxury that Solomon lived in. I'm sure he had everything for that day and time that opened and closed and turned on and that turned off. I suppose that if Solomon were to live today, he would have had every electronic gadget, every kind of uh, every kind of automatic thing that you could possibly put into a house. He would have had the very best of appliances, the very best of furniture that you or I couldn't even begin to even think about buying or owning in our own homes. He had everything. Jesus couldn't talk about any house like that. In fact, I suppose that the most Pathetic sentence to ever fall from human lips is when Jesus said the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But let me tell you the difference. As beautiful as Solomon's house was and as wonderful of a place as it would have been for Solomon's house to live in, I'm sure there were times when people in Solomon's house got sick I'm sure there were times in Solomon's house where people argued. I'm sure there were times in Solomon's house where people grew old. And there were times in Solomon's house when people died. But in Jesus' house, there are no wreaths on the door. There are no funeral trains that pass by. There are no nursing homes or hospital beds or doctors. Because those things aren't needed in Jesus' home. Jesus couldn't talk about any house like Solomon's here upon this earth, but he could talk about his Father's house. And he said, It has many mansions, and I go to prepare it, that where I am, there you may be also. It was Jesus, not Solomon, who in eternal and heavenly glory hath prepared the home that the Hebrew writer says, Hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11. And verse 10, and as the old song says, oh, think of that home over there. And you'll see that behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And you know, I suppose that there's one final thing I might mention in conclusion, because the story of Solomon isn't quite complete, is it? We talked about how Solomon began. But Solomon didn't end that way. Solomon went down in defeat before it was all said and done because he sinned. And Solomon really died in shame in the eyes of God. His heart turned away from God. And this kingdom fell into the incapable son, the hands of his haughty son, Rehoboam. And the kingdom divided. And the kingdom went into captivity. And things simply went downhill from there. And finally, hundreds and hundreds of years later, you know where it all ended up? The Roman army came in upon that city and upon that temple, and they tore it all down until not one stone was left standing on another. And that nation that Solomon had ruled over was scattered to the wind, never to be rebuilt. Jesus lived a poor and forsaken life on this earth, but he went home to something better. And he has a kingdom, he has a temple that will stand forever. Are you a part of it? Are you a citizen of that kingdom? If you're placing your hopes and your dreams and ambitions on the things of this earth, you're making a very foolish mistake. Because as we turn on the news every night, especially lately, we see that things are in great peril. And things are very unpredictable from one day to the next, and there are a lot of anxieties and fears and uncertainties. And that's the way it will always be in the kingdoms of men. They come and they go, they rise and they fall. But Jesus' kingdom will stand forever. And one day, Jesus is gonna return and he's gonna take that kingdom and he's gonna deliver it up to God. And we're gonna live up there under the reign of God the Father forever. Are you part of that? Is that your destiny tonight? If not, would you not obey the gospel? Step down this aisle, believing in Jesus as the Son of God, repenting of your sins. Make the good confession that you believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and be buried with him in baptism where his blood can wash away your sins. And we'll help you do that tonight. I can't think of a more thrilling way to begin this series of meetings than to help someone become a Christian tonight. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information,